The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. We are live from London and Basel. And here are your headlines. The JP Morgan boss, Jamie Dimon, is warning the banking crisis is not over and that aftershocks will be felt for years to come as the global economy hangs on the brink of recession. Sergio Ermotti returns as UBS holds its first AGM since the takeover of Credit Suisse as its fallen rival puts up to angry shareholders. What remains is, understandably, disappointment, bitterness, and among the long-standing employees in particular, also grief about the end of a bank that we continue to believe in. A jolt to the market. U.S. February job openings dropped below 10 million in a sign the Fed's hiking cycle could finally be putting the brakes on the economy, with equities, treasury yields and the greenback all lower in trade on Tuesday. Donald Trump pleads not guilty to 34 counts of falsifying business records over alleged hush money payments. The former president tells his supporters he's the victim of election interference. Incredibly, we are now a failing nation. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. And oil prices edge higher as the market takes in this week's surprise OPEC Plus output cut, while Shell CEO Well Sawan says significantly more investment is needed to meet global demand. The expectation is that we will need close to $700 billion a year of investment into oil and gas. The world today is not investing that amount. We are under-investing in oil and gas. Dolge in that brilliant shot of London this morning. If there's one thing you can guarantee, it's that Mother Nature will turn up and deliver. And Jamie Dimon probably thinks he's done just the same as far as the interests of his depositors and his shareholders are concerned here, because we seem to have gone from doubts about banks to doubts from bankers. The current crisis is not over yet. That is the warning from JP Morgan's CEO in his annual letter. He said the consequences from the latest financial shock will be felt for years to come. Diamond also said greater regulation and constant scrutiny of risks will be required in order to navigate away from danger. However, the JP Morgan boss stressed the current environment is, quote, nothing like what occurred during the 08 global financial crisis. Ironically, it comes as we have UBS's AGM today. This will be the first since announcing the takeover of longtime rival Credit Suisse. The meeting will also mark the return of Sergio Amotti as CEO after he stepped down back in 2020. He's charged 
with the successful integration of Credit Suisse now into UBS, but fears remain over the scale of potential job cuts as a result of the merger. Well, the UBS AGM comes a day after, of course, Credit Suisse chairman Axel Lehman told his bank shareholders he was, quote, truly sorry for the forced takeover. Lehman addressed investors at Credit Suisse's own AGM and said efforts to restructure the bank were too little too late. We fought hard to ensure a successful turnaround. Ulrich Kerner and I were fully aware that such a profound strategic and cultural transformation would require time and that in year one of implementation the bank would be most vulnerable. The period from October to March was not long enough. One legacy issue after another had already seen trust eroded and with it patience dwindled. And that, at that we failed. It's a bitter reality to see that uh, our strategy didn't have time to bear fruit. We also heard from Credit Suisse CEO Ulrich Korner, who stressed executives were left with no choice over the merger with UBS. The bank's survival was at stake, and we were forced to act quickly and resolutely. We no longer had a choice. The collapse of Credit Suisse would have been disastrous, not just for Switzerland, but for the global economy at large. The Bank of England has approved the merger of Credit Suisse and UBS. According to Reuters, it comes after the EU gave the deal temporary approval, but says it will still need to request full clearance under the bloc's merger rules. Well, Credit Suisse board members faced a hostile reception at Tuesday's AGM. UBS's shareholders appear to be more welcoming of the merger, with shares in the lender up almost 10% since the takeover was announced. Uh, Germana has now moved from Zurich to Basel for today's AGM there. Uh, uh, early in the morning, Germana, I know you probably don't have too many people turning up so far here, but can you give us um, some colour on what's expected today and what do you think the mood will be among those Swiss shareholders who turn up for this event? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also uh, significant to look at this in the context of the mood of yesterday because for many, as we were reporting into the event and as we had the chance to speak to many of the shareholders who were showing up, it was a day of anger, of frustration, but also of great sadness because it was the bookend, the, right, the final chapter of a bank that spans over 160 years of Swiss history, was once known as the crown jewel of the financial banking system. And to hear the likes of Credit Suisse management come up and say, well, we had no other alternative. We were either going to go down the route of bankruptcy or a deal. And for that, we are sorry, was quite impactful. It was a very, very historic moment in financial history and also uh, for, for Swiss banking history. So if you could talk about the mood of yesterday, I would say that it was one of, of somberness and perhaps at the end of a chapter. Whereas today, investors are coming and looking ahead to something new, the birth of something new, this new bank. What is it going to look like? What shape will it look like? 
how does the new returning CEO Serge Armwati imagine that the integration is going to take place? And remember, shareholders of UBS were also not consulted on the deal either. Yesterday we spoke about the fact that Credit Suisse didn't have a say, shareholders there. UBS shareholders also didn't have a say, so this is their opportunity to understand better how management are thinking about the upside of this deal. And of course it is going to come with complications. I thought it was interesting yesterday that one of the people that we spoke to, one of the guests on the show, Bruno Verstefet from Lakefield Partners, was saying that in general, if you look back at uh, examples of bank mergers, 60 to 70 percent don't really succeed. But there is a precedent for UBS, and Jeff, I'm sure you know this very well, being a, a, a historian buff, but at 1997, UBS was actually merged with its second largest Swiss rival back then, Swiss Banking Corp. And from that, the UBS as we know it today was created. And that merger at the time came on the heels of a one year uh, after a proposed merger with Credit Suisse. At the time, UBS management didn't want to go down the Credit Suisse path. And here we are, 26, 27 years later, almost in a similar situation where the banks, number one and number two banks, are now coming together uh, to try to create this big bank what will be essentially the biggest bank in Switzerland and the fourth largest bank in the world. So in terms of what it's going to look like, we've had a few clues from the chairman, uh, Mr. Kelleher, over the last couple of weeks, the two press conferences he's given, even Mr. Amoti himself, when he returned last week, he said that the plan, the model for the new entity is very much similar to the model that UBS has at the moment, which is a downsizing investment bank and a lot of emphasis on the wealth management unit. Now, they've talked about a lot of cost cuts, what that's going to mean in terms of how many businesses are going to be cut, how many jobs are going to be lost. These are questions that our investors that want to get answers. Add to that some of the legislative, legislative headaches that we've talked about the last few days. Lots of shareholders are potentially considering legal action over some of the, uh, the, the decisions that were taken. The Swiss prosecutor also looking into the conditions of the takeover deal. So that is to say that it's not to say that the deal uh, is not going to be without complications, but analysts are of the view that eventually this will unlock a lot of upside for anyone who does hold UBS shares. Uh, but we just need to make it through the next couple of months. A couple of things to watch out for. Next week, we've got the federal committee, so that is the uh, senior parliamentarian group in Switzerland sitting down to discuss the deal. As we spoke about yesterday, there's a lot of public backlash about some of the terms. So it'll be interesting to see what some of the lawmakers have to say. And then, Jeff, I, su I suppose you're going to be back here on April 25th because that is when UBS actually released their earnings. So that is another opportunity as well for shareholders to get some more detail on what this future bank is going to look like. But I suspect the Q&A today will also be quite spicy, perhaps not as spicy as we had in the Credit Suisse one yesterday, though. Jumana, let me pick up there um, on something you said about the analyst community and the upside that a number of analysts see in the UBS stock from here. Because in the immediate aftermath of the deal, the stock suffered. And then it seemed as though the uh, investment community anyway thought that the UBS actually really got Credit Suisse on the cheap. How is the investment community by and large thinking about this deal? Are they on board with the analysts that say there is substantial upside from here if you can wait it out? I, I think that's a very valid question, Juliana. I would say that the analyst community, by and large, and even the rating agencies, we've spoken to a couple last week as well, are cautious, short-term, and more positive, medium-term, long-term. Cautious because of the reasons that I cited. But if you think about it, if you were a UBS shareholder even six months ago, 
the business case for investing in UBS was it was a low risk business. They had really centered back on wealth management. Uh, it was um, it planned to give a lot of capital with the share buybacks. Obviously, that now has been binned with the announcement of this takeover deal. Uh, and it was just a, a steady business that offered some upside potential from organic growth. Now, all of those things have changed because they've acquired growth. They're no longer delivering on the big share buybacks. And we're probably in for a couple of years of uh, tumultuous business integration. So all of that is going to take time. But we have to go back to the price that UBS paid for acquiring Credit Suisse. Loads of people are talking about still the fact that they had so much cushion embedded in. Not only did they acquire a 42 billion equity company for 3 billion, but they also have the Swiss government indemnity on top of that 9 billion, in addition to the write down of those 81, it's not the 16 billion. So they've got a 25 billion cushion in case other things do arise as well, uh, other potential legal cases or things on the balance sheet that investors are not aware of. So uh, I would say short term cautious, medium term more positive based on some of the book value potential that exists in this combined entity. Jamana, thank you very much indeed for that. Probably early doors here, but I think for a lot of UBS and Credit Suisse uh, employees, the question of who is keeping their job and who is losing their job is going to be very material today because this business now combined, I don't know, the workforce is well in excess of 100,000, about 125,000, I think the number was. And the reports the last couple of days seem to be suggesting about 36,000 jobs to go here. But just to confirm, we don't have any hard information on that, but it'd be interesting to see whether there are questions today at the AGM around that. Absolutely, especially if UBS ultimately ends up successfully scrapping Credit Suisse's plan to sell most of its investment bank to Michael Klein. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And it is all about the jobs, isn't it, basically, at the moment? At the moment. The jobs. (laughs) It is all about the jobs. It is all about the jobs. In Switzerland and in the U.S. The number of U.S. job openings sank to its lowest level in almost two years in February, down 632,000 to 9.9 million. For the first two months of the year, the number of vacancies fell 1.3 million. Despite signs of easing in the labor market, which will be welcome news to the Fed, it does remain tight with 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person. That's down from 1.9 in January. The March unemployment report is due on Friday. And the quits rate is still high. I mean, did you see the quits numbers back in March? I mean, people still think Mm. that they can leave and get another job here. So before people start going, oh, my God, look, we're below 10. This is a tight market still. Mm. I suppose it depends what part of the market you're in. And there's been a lot of of divergence and and dispersion around uh, which sectors are seeing these different trends. Mm. Um, But it it is interesting. a lot of optimism still for for many that the labor market will remain tight. So what does it mean for uh, interest rates? Well, the Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester says she sees the base rate topping 5% amid signs turmoil in the sector has been contained and that she doesn't see a scenario where the Fed will need to cut interest rates soon. Mester, who doesn't have a vote on the FOMC committee this year, says the exact level will be determined by how much inflation and inflation expectations fall. Well, the Fed hiked its funds rate to between 4.75 and 5% last month. Juliana. 
Let's get a check on U.S. equity markets and the reaction to uh, the data yesterday. Investors obviously waiting in large part for the political developments that took place uh, late in the day yesterday with uh, former President Trump, of course, uh, making his way to the New York court and pleading not guilty. We'll get into that story in plenty of detail in the next hour. But that was something that was hanging over investors yesterday, as well as that data that we just talked about, signaling that the economy could be showing signs of cool. So as for equity markets, all three of the majors ended lower. The tech-heavy Nasdaq dropped about half a percent. Similar losses for the S&P 500 and the Dow Jones. In terms of sectors, industrials led the declines yesterday, while utilities was the best-performing part of the market. As for treasuries, we saw treasury yields move lower with spreads steepening throughout the course of the day. Right now, the U.S. 10-year note is trading with a yield of around 3.35 percent. Toward the front end of the curve, we're trading higher uh, with a yield of about 3.86%. In terms of FX markets, here's a picture of how the dollar is trading. We've got a sterling uh, trading on the back foot versus the greenback this morning. Euro, similar picture. We're trading slightly weaker, but now flat versus the dollar. Uh, A lot of focus on New Zealand. We're going to get into that story a little bit later. But in New Zealand, the the central bank there is surprising markets with a 50 basis point rate hike. So we've seen a rally in the uh, the Kiwi, uh, the New Zealand currency overnight. Over to commodities, let's take a look at gold, a key safe haven asset. We currently uh, are looking at about a 17 basis point rally in gold. We're trading above the 2023 level. Silver, meanwhile, holding steady. In oil markets, we are looking at at some bit of a bounce this morning in Brent and WTI. Brent holding steady around the $85 a barrel mark. WTI up about half a percent. This, of course, after the surprise uh, production cut announced by OPEC Plus over the weekend. Markets now having some time to digest that news. As for the overnight session, I already mentioned some of the movement in New Zealand after that surprise 50 basis point rate hike out of the central bank there, drawing contrast to what we saw from Australia's central bank earlier in the week, holding steady when it comes to its rates. Um, right now, we are looking at the uh, Japanese market trading lower by about 1.6%, the uh, Korean market trading about 0.6% higher. You don't see China and Hong Kong up here. Those markets are closed today. Over in Europe, opening calls this morning indicate that we are in in store uh, for, let's take a look, uh, a negative start. That's what the futures are telling us as of now. We're looking at a very marginal pullback for Europe. So following what we saw on Wall Street yesterday, it looks as though global equity investors taking a little bit of a pause for breath this morning. Jeff? Yeah, so very interesting, uh, um, these moves that we're seeing on interest rates. And I think it's worth just taking a moment to uh, to dwell on these. So my, my question at this point would be, what do they see in Wellington that they don't see in Sydney? So the um, RBNZ clearly has surprised the markets. We were trying to come up with a good line this morning for our straps, our visual straps here. And we were talking about the, you know, was this, was this the uh, interest rate shocker, <laughs> as they might put it, uh, I guess, in New Zealand that no one was expecting. And clearly 25 basis points was very much penciled in. But I think um, we might have seen the RBA Uh, move earlier in the week here, but they decided to pause and follow the Canadians. So you just wonder what the difference here is. Ultimately, the RBNZ cash rate now five and a quarter, the inflation rate is still over seven. So they are sticking to their metal when it comes to fighting inflation at this point. But interesting that 
we got those moves yesterday across the US markets, it seemed to me on a belief that actually the Fed should be backing away from any more hikes here. Mm. Otherwise, I can't understand why yields fell, the dollar fell, and we also saw gold spike. And we also saw equities pull back, which was interesting. If we are looking at a Federal Reserve that is on the brink of pausing, um, you know, typically that's been positive for equities, uh, in particular tech stocks. But we didn't see a rally in tech yesterday. We saw the Nasdaq pull back in line with the broader U.S. market. And I wonder to what extent that's because uh, if the Fed is moved to pause, not necessarily at the next meeting, but perhaps over the summer, um, then is that confirmation that the Fed is concerned about the underlying growth picture? in the U.S. economy, which in turn is negative for stocks. So it looks as though investors may be getting nervous that uh, growth concerns will outweigh the positive impact from lower rates for equities. Growth does seem to be decelerating, doesn't it? Uh, but very gradually, perhaps more mm. gradually than some of those who are more bearish about the market seem to think. And while we're talking about bearish, I think we ought to spend a little bit of time here on Jamie Dimon. What's his game? 43-page annual letter to shareholders. We know Jamie Dimon has warned in the past about some of the adventures in monetary policy that we've seen our central banks engage in. But what's his game here? Because uh, for Jamie Dimon's bank, I guess volatility is not a bad thing, but ultimately this is also a bank operating in capital markets and in advisory, in investment banking, that would like to see a bit more deal flow at this stage. But his commentary, do we just take it on face value here that Jamie Dimon says we're not done here with the banking crisis? There is more still to come. This will last a whole lot longer from someone of Jamie Dimon's stature. This is kind of worrying. Well, you you raise a really interesting point about, you know, potential, I suppose, conflict of interest. J.P. Morgan stands as a key beneficiary of a lot of the turmoil that we've seen in the U.S. banking sector with the regional lenders coming under pressure. J.P. Morgan has stood as a pillar of stability in the U.S. banking sector and been on the receiving end of, no doubt, some of those outflows that we've seen from some of the regional lenders. Um, One of the lines that stuck out to me from the shareholder letter was what he had to say about the inverted yield curve and whether we should interpret it as a sign of recession coming. And he said, today's inverted yield curve implies we are going into a recession, but may not be true this time because of the enormous effect of QT. And this has been something that Jamie Dimon has talked about for months now, that we don't know the impact of QT because we've never seen it at this scale before. And perhaps that's contributing to the yield curve inversion and might detract from its usefulness as a recession indicator this time around. Right. Um, Just a reminder, if you're not familiar with the terminology from central banks, quantitative tightening, effectively running down the balance sheet of the bank. It acts as a a fiscal tightener, a monetary tightener, if you like, on the economy. Um, and reduces uh, liquidity. But but you said conflict of interest. I wonder if it's more alignment of interests mm. as far as Jamie Dimon is concerned with yeah. some of these warnings. But we'll, we'll wait and watch on this. Um, let's just go back to that RBNZ story and give you a little bit more colour. The uh, New Zealand central bank then surprising markets this morning. They lifted interest rates by 50 basis points. It was the 11th consecutive move higher since New Zealand central bank started lifting interest rates in October of 2021. Interest rates now sit at their highest level in 14 years at 5.25%. What about the circus in New York? Donald Trump is the first US president to be charged with a crime facing 34 counts 
of falsifying business records. We will discuss what happens next and explain why these are felonies, I think you'd say, Juliana? That's what they're called. Felonies. We will be back with more on that. And for more on the reception awaiting UBS executives at today's AGM, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has been charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records. Trump pled not guilty to his alleged role in orchestrating a hush money scheme during his 2016 presidential campaign. It's the first time a sitting or former U.S. president has been charged with a crime. The former president returned to Florida on Tuesday evening and delivered a rally-like speech at his Mar-a-Lago resort, lashing out at the New York prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, for bringing the criminal charges against him, claiming he is being unjustly persecuted. Trump, who is next due in court on December 4th, ended his speech with a familiar call to supporters. Incredibly, we are now a failing nation. We are a nation in decline. And now these radical left lunatics want to interfere with our elections by using law enforcement. We can't let that happen. With all of this being said, and with a very dark cloud over our beloved country, I have no doubt, nevertheless, that we will make America great again. In a post-court press conference, the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg said, this historic case shows all Americans are equal under the law. At its core, this case today is one with allegations like so many of our white-collar cases. Allegations that someone lied again and again to protect their interests and evade the laws to which we are all held accountable. As this office has done time and time again, we today uphold our solemn responsibility to ensure that everyone stands equal before the law. No amount of money and no amount of power changes that enduring American principle. Well, that's the Attorney General. Let's get to Peter Trubovitz, uh, director of the Philon uh, U.S. Centre at the London School of Economics. Peter, always good to have you back with us for analysis on this story. Look, uh, since the indictment, Trump has raised $8 million. So the base is emptying its pockets for him. He's building a bigger fighting fund off the back of this. Is this going to blow back in the faces of the Democrats? Good to be with you, Jeff. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I, I would say, you know, the the indictment is going to have uneven effects. And it's pretty clear, I think, already that it's it's juicing his numbers. 
um, among his supporters. Uh, you know, four out of five Republicans buy into Trump's claim that he's being framed, that it's uh, and this is only going to reinforce support among Republican primary voters. And you're seeing that in the numbers, the fundraising numbers that you mentioned. Um, but I think, you know, there's another uh, electorate here and that's that really matters. And that's the independent voters who voted against Trump in 2020. And it's it's hard for me to see how yesterday's decision um, is like, you know, going to make them more likely to support Trump. I think if anything, it will reinforce their concerns about his suitability for the presidency. So, you know, it's it's one of these, this act, this decision, the indictment doesn't have a kind of constant even effect. It breaks differently. Of course, the Democrats, you know, um, uh, you know, it's 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 reinforcing opposition to Trump and will juice the numbers on the other side. But I think the key constituency or the key voting block to watch here are the independent voters. Peter, let me continue um, down this line of line of thought. There is a view circulating that the Democrats actually want this to uh, galvanize support for uh, former President Trump and secure his nomination uh, from the Republican Party because they want Trump to run against the Democrats in the general election, because at this point, the uh, polls suggest that he wouldn't win if he was up against the Democrats. And to your point about the independents, I saw one poll uh, out over the weekend that over 60 percent of independents agree with the indictment, suggesting that this is not going to turn any of those independents into Trump supporters. What do you think of that view that the Democrats actually want this to elevate Trump standing? Yeah, I mean, I think from the Democrats' standpoint, I mean, if we're just kind of like running this politically, playing it out politically, I think this, you know, it serves their interests. It freezes the Republican field. I mean, DeSantis is losing momentum during this. It's very hard for them, to, Republicans, to figure out how to position themselves, a, a re potential Republican candidates. And I think the betting among Democrats, which I think is a safe bet, is that Donald Trump can't win the popular vote. Doesn't mean he can't win the Electoral College. He proved that in, in 2016. But um, but it does it it makes it harder. I mean, I would say though, you know, it's important I think to kind of put the New York indictment in a larger context. I mean, a lot is really going to depend on whether this is the first. I think of multiple indictments, whether the prosecutors in Atlanta and in the Justice Department follow with indictments in those cases. Uh, and arguably this case, this indictment makes it more likely that those will occur because they've broken the taboo that you guys mentioned at the at the top of, of this segment that, you know, it's the first time that a, a former um, president has been been indicted. But I, so I think kind of, you know, that the politics of this are likely to be shaped by these other cases, you know, these more the more damaging investigations, really, that are still outstanding. Interesting. OK, so even if these charges don't necessarily stick, which many are, are skeptical that they will, it's the other investigations that we need to watch. How would you rate the, the, the likelihood um, that that former Trump is former President Trump is actually charged and, and does go to jail when all of this is said and done? 
Well, like I don't have a crystal ball, but like I said, I think that this this makes it easier for um, you know for the prosecutors in Georgia, you know, or the in the Justice Department to 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 move on their cases because we've kind of crossed I don't know the Rubicon. We've crossed the you know over onto the other side here. It's the danger I think is that we conflate. This is not to say that this case is not important, but it involves pretty obscure, this New York case, campaign finance laws, and of course, sexual hush money with, you know, with cases that involve, you know, actions by Trump um, uh, to um, uh, interfere with the elections and um, uh, in in Georgia and the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th, 2020. And so, I mean, I think one problem here is that there's a kind of blurring in a way uh, in the public mind, potentially, of these cases. So just to kind of argue on the other side of this, it seems to me that's kind of one of the potential uh, dangers uh, in terms of the implications for American democracy. Yeah, just on that, Peter. So, so when you uh, sit down with a class full of politics students and you get that question, you know, the, if, if you have to balance off the rule of law and law being upheld against the uh, challenge to democratic rule, if you like, and the, the principles of democracy, um, how are you going to convey the right answer to them? What, what are you going to tell those students about what happened in this trial? Well, I mean, I would try to explain to them what's going on in the case, that why Alvin Bragg brought this forward. Um, I mean, it's complicated because normally these are, you know, falsifying business records, as you know, Jeff, in New York are like a misdemeanor, but they can be elevated to a more serious felony if if they're being if it's being done to defraud or conceal another crime. And that's the charge here. And that's non-trivial. I mean, that's serious. But, uh, you know, in talking to students, I would also try to get them to, you know, put that, not juxtapose it, but put that on the scale on a spectrum of that versus an attempt to overturn the election and interfere with the election results in Georgia in 2020 and and um and and the January 6th um event i mean they're just they're they're different animals and um i i would try to help students kind of parse that and understand that um uh, and the differences in the longer term implications of the latter cases Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express For more market moving news you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.